So I call tonight good news, bad news. Uh, one of those cheesy uh, billboards they stick out outside some Anglican churches uh, had, had apparently this heading on it. Um, and uh, whilst I don't like the headings normally, it's actually true that the Bible's got a lot of uh, sobering, at the very least, passages in it, as well as wonderfully illuminating passages. And I love the way um, you know, when people choose Bible verses to put on fridges, we all miss the bad news ones and go for the good news ones. So tonight um, I will look at the bad news ones and how they align with this very uh, positive picture of um, apocatastasis uh, or the restitution of all things or world revel uh, reformation. Um, the more modern phrase uh, is universal salvation. Uh, I don't like that phrase uh, because it's uh, more minimalist in its connotations. It's, it's very individual focused that every individual gets saved. That was not the breathtaking vision that we went through of Gregory of Nyssa. His, his vision was the cosmos and the restitution of the cosmos. And if you don't really have that uh, vision of the, of the restitution of the cosmos and its beginnings in creation, then really the idea of the, of the fate of everybody doesn't fit um, uh, as, 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 uh, as, as naturally as it, as it does in their thinking. So the judgment texts. Um, this is very much a matter of interpretation uh, because we are seeing through a glass uh, we're always seeing through a glass and of course my background is literature and language. I'm internally fascinated by words, how wonderfully slippery they are um, and, uh, and the meaning of words, uh, which we'll go into a lot tonight. Uh, naive people think words have uh, very cut and dried meanings. Uh, in literature that's called denotation or, or, or definition. You know, word X means Y and that's that. Um, in fact, that's not how words work. The, the poetic concept of how a word works is a connotation. Con uh, in, in other words, the image would be better captured by throwing a stone into a pond. If, if the word is a stone, then the ripples that expand out are the, are the connected meanings that that word associates for us. And of course, uh, those connected meanings will be somewhat in the deliberate intention of the writer, but somewhat in our experience. So in a way, the writer is deliberately doing something dynamic. Uh, and, and of course, you can take a positive or a negative view of this. If you take a negative view, you just say, don't say anything to anybody because you'll be misinterpreted. Um, you don't take the risk. One of the wonderful things about our God and the God of the scriptures is he speaks from the beginning. He takes the risk of being... Marvel, uh, you know, magnificently misunderstood. Um, and so I think it's a great encouragement for us to take, take the risk. And as a matter of fact, um, the risk becomes a reward because the more rich those ripples are, the better the word is. And um, one of my favourite authors is Joseph Conrad. I don't know, is anyone here a lover of Conrad? A few of us. Um, Conrad wrote in English and wrote some of the greatest novels of the, Eng of the English language, uh, like Nigger of the Narcissus, he probably couldn't have used that title today, uh, Victory, um, uh, The Heart of Darkness, which famously became um, Apocalypse Now, the movie. Uh, anyway, um, Lord Jim, yeah, he, 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 uh, English was his third language. He wrote in, in the third language he learned after French and Polish. He chose English because it had such a, a larger vocabulary and was far less scientific than the other languages. It, in fact, because of its vagueness. Uh, he could say more um, with English. So seeing through a glass, there's a great video I wanted to show. Now, some of you will have seen it. Uh, this, this is by the uh, UK Ministry of Transport. So if you haven't seen it, if you have seen it before, just keep quiet. It's a test. Uh, it was an advertisement. An awareness test. Who, who knows what it's going to be? Okay, this was a, this was a, a really um, successful uh, advertising campaign by the UK Department of Transport. This is an awareness test. 
Whoops, sorry. I need a source. Does the team in white make it? Sorry. I'll do this <coughs> better in a moment. Just wait one second for me. How many passes does the team in white make? Count. It's easy to miss something you're not looking for. Look out for cyclists. Uh, so, who, uh, who did see the moonwalking bear the first time? You did. Who didn't? <laughs> yeah. um, well, that advertisement, and for those on the, on the video uh, who are listening on the audio, what I suggest you do is um, Just Google uh, uh, Awareness Test UK Transport um, because what it shows is that when you're looking for something, you see it. And if you're not looking for it, you simply don't see it, though it's right before your eyes. And this is the experience that I've had as somebody who studied the Bible all my life, the frankly extremely explicit statement of the inclusive salvation verses just absolutely they just didn't dawn on me. I mean, I've, I've, Romans 5 is probably the, one of the epic examples. And in Romans 5, um, uh, which we'll, we'll, we'll come to later on tonight, uh, I, you know, for 20 years I studied it without seeing the word all there, as if it wasn't there. It is there. You've got to do something with it. Now, um, so this leads us to the, the problem, and we all have this problem, no matter what our views are. So seeing through a glass is... is the metaphor for tonight, and I just want to—I want to give us more tools to see through the glass. The Bible is composed of good news and bad news. It is an incredibly paradoxical book, um, and it's—it's it's so paradoxical that some people, you know, real believers, have got very cranky with it because it just presents so many problems. I mean, I've had my bad days with the Bible. Has anyone else had bad days with the Bible? I think the fact that it is so composed of good and bad news is in, is in itself interesting. But I won't go into that tonight. Um, and so you can get a verse like Romans 5, which I just mentioned. Uh, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life to all men. I mean, it is, an, it is the, the plain common sense reading of that is there is life to all in Christ. Now, on the other hand, you get this verse, which I think uh, one of our friends uh, uh, challenged me with, I think, on the very first uh, night, which is 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, which is actually probably the only verse in Paul's writing that seems to perhaps mention hell. This is what it says. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and that, that is those who don't believe, and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified. So you get verses like that that appear explicitly to be about exclusion. You get them as well in the Old Testament. Famously, Isaiah 66, the last verse of Isaiah 66, uh, which is quoted by Jesus in the New Testament, they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me, the worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. So that's picked up in Mark 9 and other passages. I mean, it's pretty scary stuff. Has anyone ever read the verse before this? Yes. Good. The verse before it says, As the new heavens and new earth that I will make will endure before me, so will your name endure from one Sabbath to another. All mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. <laughs> 
Uh, that is one of these kind of like universals. And they're just stuck right together, <laughs> as if uh, someone was challenging us. <laughs> so if you are looking at, you know, through the so-called universalist uh, framework, you will look through a good news framework at the good news. You'll probably see those ones first, and then the bad news ones you'll have to reinterpret. And on the other hand, if you have an Augustinian view, you'll do the opposite. You'll take a bad news framework, find the texts, and then have to explain away the other ones. It's actually quite comical to me to actually look at how people try to explain how all doesn't really mean all. It just means some. Um, now, you can argue that, but you have to say, I'm arguing away from the common sense position. <laughs> anyway, so that is uh, the challenge we've got tonight, is to create some kind of framework that could make some sense out of this, rather than just picking, you know. So um, the problem texts that I thought of, I, I, I grouped around what I call the pyramid of fear. So the top of the pyramid is the really scary stuff and the bottom is slightly less scary, but it seems to be a pyramid. And interestingly, the really scary stuff, there's a lot, lot less of it. You know, the actual versus, if you say, look, the real thing we're wondering is does hell equal endless torment? They're not, you don't have to get rid of very many verses to get rid of that one. That's, that's the top of it. But underneath it, there's the annihilationist position, which is, well, what about the loss of life? And certainly, in my view, that is the only viable alternative. You can, I think the top one is wrong. But annihilation is certainly a, a, a valid position that you could say is suggested in some passages. It's still very sobering. Um, underneath them, though, you get into this whole fire, punishment, loss of reward cluster of verses. A lot of Jesus' parables are about that, you know, people getting variable rewards, weeping, gnashing of teeth, and so on. They don't say you go to hell, but they do seem to figure some, something that's, that's um, sobering. And then underneath them, there is this, uh, I think, really important one, because it's picked up by, I think, a lot of people who are not believers, which is this is a message of inclusion, exclusion, in the club, out of the club. And that inclusion, exclusion, of course, if you pick up that you're actually the one who's being told you're excluded, um, it's not a particularly good place to start for, for everybody. So um, I want to look at some of those frameworks tonight and reframe them. Uh, what I've also done is I've created a template to play Bible verse tennis with. Um, so, you know, the metaphor of Bible verse tennis occurs to me, which is I've got a good text, so I'm going to serve. And if I send you down a smashing 180 kilometre serve, the ball's in your court, you've got to do something with it. Um, and traditionally, it's the kind of evangelical Augustinians, yeah, well, what about smash? You know, that's an ace, you can't get that back. So our job is a defensive return. Like, yeah, but it, that's yes, but. Like, no, you know, I just get the ball back over the net. Versus uh, an offensive return, which is a really good one, which is, well, guess what, matey? You have problems too, because this verse does not or passage has equal problems for the four spiritual laws, which I'll explain. And then the third way is, what if it means something that neither of us have quite, what if there's a paradigm behind this that we're both missing in Bible verse tennis? But uh, I, I, I haven't had time to fill this in, I easily could, but you can see you've got the Old Testament. There's quite a bit of stuff in the Old Testament that's very much from the traditional hell viewpoint. Matthew's Gospel, I just didn't have time to finish this one off, but I've done all the ones in Matthew's Gospel. Um, uh, then the big one in Matthew's Gospel is the sheep and the goats. That's what's commonly uh, and, and, uh, uh, cited. And then the rich man and Lazarus, which is only in Luke, Luke 16. That's really very often cited as a proof of uh, heaven hell. The epistles, much less. Um, as a matter of fact, that's one of the issues that uh, um, certainly... Um, people on the universal side will mention that Paul just never, ever talks about hell. Uh, now, the big exception we've already had, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, that's a pretty scary verse, that passage is. Then the book of Revelation, which is full of really scary stuff as well. So I think mostly uh, I, I, was, I was aiming tonight to fill all of those in, but I just uh, ran out of time. But do you like that? You could play, you could have games of Bible verse tennis. I thought we could start a board game or something. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, um, but it's quite good that it's not filled in because you can do it yourself, you know. Um, I, I do fill a couple in as a, by way of example at the end. Of course, though, um, if you're really uh, uh, attracted to the idea of cosmic redemption, well, 
then we can serve as well, which is um, we have this smashing 180 kilometer serve, or I do anyway. Um, texts from the Old Testament, there are tons of them. Actually, once you, once you see them, uh, the Gospel of John, lots in the Gospel of John. Uh, Acts, there's stuff in Acts. Romans, 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 5 and Romans 8 were the big ones that the Patristic Fathers focused on and 1 Corinthians 15, which I'll mention tonight, and Colossians. So these are, uh, and I'd add Ephesians. So straight away you see there's a lot of Paul stuff there that's absolutely on the first serve of the Universalists. There was nothing on the other side. And then the book of James, which I won't talk about tonight, but will later on. Surprisingly, yes, James. And the book of Revelation itself. So Revelation's got both. So, uh, but we could do a board game. I think a Christian board game. You can invite people around. I'm sure that someone smarter than I can turn this into a board game and uh, get somewhere with it. Have, all the cards can be different verses and you can pick them and put them in. And Anyway, uh, to play that game intelligently, though, we need to go back to what I talked about, which is the idea of the conceptual framework through which you read a word. So the key interpretive frames that I want to look at tonight, and I think these are mostly the big ones. The first is the word eternal. It's a massive one. The second are a series of words around judgment. Judgment, condemnation, punishment, there are a few of them. And they're not all the same word in the Greek. Uh, then the, the words about fire, fire and hell. Um, and then finally election, you know, choice in, out and, and so on. So my aim tonight will be to go through those, um, give you, I think, the uh, options for how to interpret them, and then look at how they shine different lights on some of these scriptures. Beginning with eternal. Now, the critical part about this, uh, and we've said this before, apologies for those who've heard it before, but uh, certainly uh, Ilaria Ramelli um, emphasises this. Uh, the Latin only had, the Latin uh, Vulgate only had one word, eternus, for two words in the Greek. Um, the Greek had idios and aeonus, and idios belongs to the philosophical lexicon and means eternal in the strict sense. Timeless, it's a platonic word meaning timeless without time. Um, aeonus does not mean that at all. It is an age. It is an historically long epoch. It needn't even be that long. And it's usually governed by a worldview or an identity. You know, the Romantic era, we talk about that. That's, that's a perfect example of it. Or the San Francisco era. There was an epoch of time governed by some sort of worldview. That's what eon, and we get our word eon from it. Now, the by far more common word in the New Testament is aeonus. So any time, with about one or two exceptions that actually are quite, don't matter to our argument, you see the word eternal in the New Testament, it doesn't mean eternal, it means of the age to come or of an age. As a result, both Tom Wright and Bentley Hart, in their translations, have changed it to of the age to come or some such phrase, with one notable exception on Tom Wright's part, which made Bentley Hart very cranky. <laughs> he thought he wimped out, and I think he's right. But that's the first one. Now, um, as we said last week, Augustine did not read Greek, was contemptuous of Greek, was not interested in Greek. Apparently, people tried to explain this to him and he wouldn't listen. But the Greek fathers did read Greek. That was their, they were very fluent in it. They were fully aware of this world to come idea. And uh, certainly Romelli argues that if there's one mistranslated word and concept that let Augustine carry the day, it was this one. I think it's bigger than that because I think Augustine was playing into the Platonic concept of, uh, of reality. I want to spend a bit of time looking at this only because I think we have a lot of imaginative work to do to build up some kind of imaginative landscape on what the age to come could mean. Um, it's, actually, it's actually a bit vacant for us. And it's certainly one of the things I 
personally want to grow in my imagination. Did Gregory of Nessa challenge Augustine? No, I don't think they, I think they barely knew of each other's existence. Like they never wrote letters, they didn't debate, they were one generation apart. Right. But they may as well have lived at the other ends of the earth, I think. Still, still pretty true. The Eastern Church doesn't give much note to Augustine. Oh, no. He's not a major player. No, no, he's not now. Okay, so a few diagrams. Um, and for those on the, who listened via the, uh, the internet, it's, at, it's around about 800 people a talk out of interest. Um, let's look at the age to come. This is the Platonic view of the world. So the Platonic view of the world is that we're wandering along in life, physical life, and when we die, there's a bifurcation, upstairs, downstairs. Upstairs to heaven, which is the abode of God, a uh, bodiless spiritual state like God, or down into hell, which would be the eternal obverse of heaven. So you can see there is an implicit platonic parallelism between heaven and hell, like almost coming out of the same mental structures. And uh, without doubt, that model in one way or another dominated Augustine's mind and dominates the mind of most people out in the streets. Is there life after death? Uh, you know, I was very interested in a show on the ABC some time ago, interviewing some atheists, uh, yeah, not atheists, one of them wasn't an atheist, who, uh, um, uh, a Muslim guy, the journalist Wahid Ali, Ali um, but everyone else was. And they were talking about religion. And everybody who said they didn't believe immediately talked about life after death. That's what it was. It wasn't about Christ or the existence of God or life. It was life after death. What's happened, as we know, in the last 20 years is more and more people have actually said, hang on, it's a new heaven and a new earth. Physicality continues and creation continues. And um, probably nobody has done that more than Richard Middleton in his book, New Heaven and New Earth, and Tom Wright. And that's great. They're picking up the very obvious things the Bible says. However, this causes some... Well, the obverse of this is the people who've done that have also gone back to Genesis 1 and 2 and creation. So we've got a stronger beginning and a stronger end, biblically. And that's great stuff. However, there's missing territory, conceptually, which is what about the stuff in the middle? What... You know, what is the, what, the fact of a new heaven and new earth, what does this say to the imaginative landscape we have after death or the imaginative landscape of the future? It's, it's, it's definitely got us in the right uh, locality, but this, this foreground area, area between, say, my life today and my death and this future state is clearly got to get populated by our imaginations. Where does the resurrection fit in is another important one. The, 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 clearly, the resurrection of Christ was an event that pre-shadowed the resurrection of all of the cosmos. When does that occur in this picture? So, so there's some of the areas that this age to come, I think, addresses. The patristics were very, very familiar with Plato. They were extremely educated in and, and had dialogue with the Greeks and they liked them, but they drew the line more strongly than Augustine did. And what they did was, in, in, in my imagination, they stuck like the age to come is this post-death preliminary but interregnum period before the final end. So when they talk about... Uh, the lake of fire, the incredibly important thing for them in the lake of fire is it is the death of death. You remember death is cast. And think about it. If death is cast into the lake of fire, it's the last enemy to be destroyed. There is no death. Then everything is filled with a resurrection. But they saw that as the final sort of preliminary, almost the consummation of the age to come and the inauguration of the new heavens and the new earth. So that's a really... Um, uh, I think a very attractive concept that death will die. Um, Can yeah. I ask a question there? Yeah. So you can take that two ways. Death being cast into the lake of fire is, 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 the intense, is either as either intensification or as a double negative. <coughs> Just wondering well, uh, is there evidence for, for taking I, the view that it's, that it's a double negative? 
Well, that, that was thought of in that way. I think the, the, the Revelation 21 and the 1 Corinthians 15 one had, and, and all that Jesus says is that life and death are not equals in the same way that good and evil are not equals. Um, and death is a temporary condition that actually is the absence of life. Therefore, when life triumphs, death will have to die. As a state, as an event, as a possibility, as a conception, death will have to be no more. Otherwise, we will not have eternal life. So, so yes, it's, it's, a, it's a final extinction of death. But it's, it's a phenomenal phrase, the death of death. Anyway, the, when they talk about the apocatastasis and resurrection, they're really looking at the very end state, the final end of all things. So they do have a mental model of a, of a sort of interim ground um, that's uh, uh, after this age and of the age to come. Their view of the age to come, therefore, had a great deal more continuity with this life. There was not the discontinuity we have. This age and the age to come, in their mind, had a, had a much stronger continuum, uh, which, would, which obviously fits in with the idea of the new heaven and the new earth continuing. So um, the idea of responsibility in this life, rewards in this life, Carrying forward without the huge break of death that we see into another state was much more real to them. They could almost, I think in their minds, they had a stronger conception of us continuing with responsibility and consequences post-death. Now, importantly, see the squiggly line I've drawn down the bottom there, fire and destruction or fire and purification, therefore has a continuity between this life and the next life, the age to come. So in their view of apocatastasis, which is the final end of all things, there is no more fire, but there is purification to get ready for that fire. And the purification is beginning now. Now that is incredibly important and absolutely demonstrable from the scripture. The, the, the big mistake people make, and I think John Dixon, our, uh, the minister at the church we go to, has given some very good talks, both on Revelation and Matthew, that there's a very strong case, and certainly Tom Wright believes this, that all of the judgment passages in Matthew were pointing to Jerusalem's destruction in 70 AD. Those terrible warnings were about a cataclysmic extinction of Jerusalem. John has said Revelation 12 was historic when John wrote it. He was referring to the persecutions in 60 AD and under Nero. I think it's quite right. In other words, this idea of apocalyptic judgment is here now. I mean, if you look at the Second World War and the First World War and we look at the atomic bomb, there's an apocalyptic judgment in this era. So the continuity of this era to the age to come um, is easier to imagine once you begin to take the view of the, uh, of the patristic fathers that the, uh, we're, in, we're in an age and an age to come. They both have the same purposes, which is the continuation of God's character and purposes. The, the text that I think uh, actually explains this in a very succinct way is 1 Corinthians 15, the fabulous uh, text uh, which uh, the, the patristic fathers um, hung their hat on a lot. I'll just read it out in a little bit more fully than that uh, quote we've got here, where he's talking about the resurrection and he says, if the dead are not raised, uh, then the anointed has not been raised either. I'm reading from Bentley Hart's translation. If the anointed has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in the anointed have perished. If we have had hope in the anointed only within this life, we are the most pitiable of men. But now the anointed has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For since death comes through a man, resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in the anointed all will be given life. And this is the important bit, and each in the proper order. He's got some idea of life being given in order with Christ being the first recipient of, of this life, first fruits. The anointed as the first fruits, thereafter those who are in the anointed at his arrival, then the full completion when he delivers the kingdom to him who is God and Father, when he renders every principality and every authority and power ineffectual. For he, he, Christ, must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. The last enemy rendered ineffectual is death. For he subordinated all things beneath his feet. He's quoting Psalm 8. But when it says all things have been subordinated beneath his feet, it is clear that this does not include the one who has subordinated all things to him. And when all things have been subordinated to him, then will the Son himself also be subordinated to the one who has subordinated all things to him so that God may be all and in all. There's an epic vision he's got there. And I think he's virtually summarizing the book of Revelation. There seems to be this struggle period when Christ must reign. And he's in that reign, he's putting down his enemies. Who are his enemies? Not us. Principalities, powers, authorities. He has to beat them. And it appears that this is not a finished work. It's clearly not a finished work if we have the evil on the earth. His, if his aim is to have the entire conscious, rational cosmos worshipping him, he still has a lot of work to do. And the work of this struggle and dominion is what I think Paul is summarizing here. When Jesus finally finishes it, he will have subordinated all the cosmos, all the angelic powers to the, to the faith of God and the glory of God and the worship of God. And he will then present the cosmos to the Father. Does that make sense? And when he presents the cosmos to the Father, the great phrase is, God will be all in all, which is a stunning phrase. God will suffuse and pervade everything in the planet to every inch of its being. That's what's going to happen. Be it a leaf, be it a bird, be it my mind, be it a, a, a society, be it a nation. So when they think about uh, the, the patristic fathers thought about this end of all things there was a great struggle toward that and the book of Revelation I think unpacks lots of that kind of cosmic struggle so I don't quite you know I can't go much further than that but at least it gives some um, of the landscape for this phrase of an age to come We can finish this with um, another really powerful image of the creation giving birth. If God created the earth and the earth is giving birth to glory, which is what he says in Romans 8, the earnest expectation of creation awaits the revelation of the sons of God. Creation itself will also be liberated from decay into the freedom of the glory of God's children. We know that all creation groans together and labours in birth pangs up to this moment. So it's got this incredible picture of the cosmos giving birth eventually to glory and the midwife being the church. Um, now, I drew a diagram of that. This is a very complex diagram. <laughs> um, where uh, at the beginning you have Christ the first fruits, where God is incarnate. But every incarnation of God occurs within a constraint. Jesus had the constraint of the Pharisees and Israel. And then the, it's like the batons passed to the church and the apostles. And they now are as Christ. They're an incarnation of God. But the church also had a battleground, the Roman Empire, the idols of Rome, and so on. And um, the nations become the kind of... Uh, era of resistance and then finally at the end the final th thing that has to be subordinated will be the cosmos itself you know earthquakes and cataclysms and so on so the picture i think that paul had is a picture of christ incarnate on the earth now we have one human being 
who is God and man. The end will be when, as he says in probably, you know, still my most epic verse in the Bible, Ephesians 1 verse 10, he will sum up all things in himself. Christ will integrate everything. And he just emphasized all things in heaven, all things in earth will be summed up and integrated in Christ. And the passage of integration is this age to come when more and more of the cosmos bows to Christ. Does that make exciting news? <laughs> now, there's a very important part of this, which I haven't mentioned, which is very important to origin, is that for every rational being in the cosmos, this will have to be a conversion. You, you, I cannot, for God, what God wants to, when Christ fills all in all is every, if it's true that every human being is included, they must have bowed the knee because God is not going to have slaves running his empire. He's going to have royal rulers. So they very much had the idea of the church being those who in this era bowed the knee and in the next era of the age to come, others will bow the knee. So they actually believed enormously in purification of those who in this age might have rejected Christ. But the, what drove them, or drove Origen certainly, was this idea that what God has set his mind on is the conversion of heart and mind of everybody to bow the knee. So no one will bow the knee through fear, anxiety, or through coercion. Well, I promise not to go as far on the other frameworks, but that eternal and age to come is a big one, I think uh, we'd all agree. These ones are easier to get rid of. The judge punishment one, this is a really interesting one. Um, there's a kind of, in our mind, a sloppy unity between those words. You can even tell in English they're very different, but they're almost used as synonyms. Um, and it gets really important, and thank you, Gordon, you know all about this one. Uh, John 5, 24. I tell you the truth, Whoever hears my word and believes has eternal life and will not be condemned, but has passed from death unto life. That's another one of those dark verses. The famous one at the end of the parable of the sheep and goats. They will go to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. They look like a slam dunk. Let's have a look. The word judge is actually... Uh, not that scary a word. It actually means to separate. I make a judgment, good from bad. I make a discernment. I hope we all think that's a great quality to have. I think, you know, I'm running... I, the, the, the judgment of the good, I, I, I could talk about this so much, is so important. I'm running a, we're running a very big workshop for one of the largest companies in Australia. I won't mention the name on account of it's so well known. Um, and uh, I was talking to a very senior executive who's not at the workshop but was giving us advice on how this group need to reinvent themselves. And, he, uh, and this lady said, look, I, I'm worried, Tony, they won't know what good is. They won't know what good is. She said, I, I, she, gave, she gave an example. Um, I, I told someone the other day in one of our countries, I want you to actually build a world-class data center. And they nodded their heads and said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I came back three months later and nothing's, just a few emails or a bit of PowerPoint, nothing's happened. And then I realized they'd never seen a world-class data center. They wouldn't know one if they fell across one. So what good is, is actually in the mind, in my mind, almost the quality of the leader. It's the quality of a teacher. It's the quality of a preacher. It's the quality of a, of a parent. I know what good is. I want to get you there. You don't at the moment, but I do. So uh, discerning, is this kind of judging what good is, is a, is, a, is a pretty wondrous phrase. But very importantly, it's the phrase of a coach. It's the phrase of a parent. It's the phrase of a leader. Because the leader knows what good is so that I can get you there. Not so I can condemn you for not being there. Punish, really interesting, and condemn. Well, two words for punish. Colazzo and Timorio, very different words. Uh, I'm quoting now Romelli on them. In the New Testament, punishment in the world to come is always Aeneas and invariably Colazzo, not Timoreo. I don't know if I'm getting the Greek pronunciation correct. According to Aristotle, Colazzo is, quote, inflicted in the interest of the sufferer whereas Timero is inflicted in the interest of him who inflicts it to obtain satisfaction. I.e., if I, this word as translated as punishment, 
if I was your coach and you're a long distance runner and I'm going to make you do three more wind sprints and you hate me all the way around because your guts are burning and you throw up at the end of it, I put you through suffering so that you can win the race. I can always remember when we coached the Barker Athletics team, Gordon, there was this little boy who was in the under 14 walk and he was only a little creature and um, he got beaten the, the week before the big event by his arch rival who was much bigger and stronger than him. And a couple of the older boys took him down to training on that, I just saw them, they decided they were really good athletes and they had this guy walking and this little kid was crying and they were showing him no mercy. They drove him and drove him and drove him because he had kind of wilted before and he'd given up. So that was a kind of a punishment in his interests. Uh, by the way, he won the race. <laughs> Next week he turned the tide. The other one is I punish you because you did something bad to me and it's retribution. So, so they're very different meanings. Um, now when the word punishment is used in the New Testament, it's always for the, I'm doing it for your benefit of growth. So in other words, it's a, it could be translated purification. Um, in the New Testament, the punishment of sinners in the world to come or in this world is inflicted in their interest, which implies it is purifying rather than retribution. It's too late for me to say that. Thank you very much. Retributive. <laughs> Condemned, by the way, hardly exists. Uh, one or two instances of it, when uh, Paul criticises Peter, he is contemptible because he's to be blamed. That, the, the, uh, yeah, that word is contemptible, but our word condemn, as we use it, almost never should be used. Romans 8, it can be, but nowhere else. So, what does that do to this verse? Bentley Hart says, I tell you that whoever hears my word and has faith in the one who has sent me has life in the age and does not come to judgment, but rather has crossed out of death into life. Well, that's a very different verse to the same one as the NIV translates it, isn't it? But it's far more accurate. I mean, there's no question that you know, there's nothing really debatable about it. It's kind of coming in and out of judgment, being spared in and out of judgment in the age to come. And if you put that back in the picture that we've just drawn of an age of you know, purification, and some people actually brought the judgment on themselves earlier by bowing the knee now, that's how that would be um, translated. And... But you'll notice the incredible difference of judgment versus condemned in the same verse. It makes a big difference, doesn't it? And similarly with Matthew 25, they will go to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life becomes, and this is Bentley Hart again, these will go to the chastening of that age, but the just to the life of that age. Fire is the last one. Fire is very interesting. Um, Leonardo da Vinci apparently compared the two cataclysms of water and fire and said how much better fire was. Water is a flood, and if you think about floods, at the end of the flood, there's so much putrefaction and disease. You know, it's a fl floods really bring um, a, you know, a terrible litany of added um, uh, you know, bad things with them. But a fire cleans things out. It'll clean the plague out. It just purifies things. And if you look at the almost universal use I mean, of the word in the Bible, it's about refinement. It's actually about refinement. It's not about you know, torture. And uh, this is a, a great list there. I think I'd love Zechariah 13.9. I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people. It's his people who are going through the fire to be refined. Now, we know what that's like in, in this life now. You know, we know what it's like to go through challenges that make us better people. Um, uh, Job 23, verse 10, he knows the way that I take when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Um, 
Malachi 3.3, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. They, again and again and again, if he's that committed to the human race and the human race becoming royal rulers of the cosmos, he's got to get us ready. It's like that little boy doing laps and those older kids said, you are going to win this race. I know you want to sit down and sulk and suck your thumb and cry, but you're not going to because you're going to win this race. And it's like our God is saying, you're going to win this race. You're going to rule this cosmos. So I'm going to get you there. So that's the refinement of uh, fire. Uh, for the patristics, purifying was really massive. And a very, very, probably the epic text for them is 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, I think 1 Corinthians 3 is, um, I think, incredibly important. The whole of 1 Corinthians 3 is because it's about um, building upon the foundation of Christ, um, building upon the message of the gospel. Uh, it's really worth reading the whole lot, but I won't. Uh, he said, um, I planted, Apollos watered, but God causes growth. Um, so growth's what he's interested in. Hence, neither the one planting nor the one watering is anything, but rather God causing the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward in keeping with his own labour, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, I laid a foundation like a wise master builder, but somebody else builds on it. But let everybody be careful how he builds. So if on the foundation one erects gold, silver, precious stones, woods, hay and, stu and stubble, each one's work will become manifest for the day will declare it because it is revealed by fire and the fire will prove what kind of work each person's is. If the work that someone has built endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work shall be burned away, he will suffer loss, yet he shall be saved, though so as by fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? I think it's an incredibly inspiring passage. We're God's temple and he's going to get us there. Now, that was incredibly important to the patristics and, and uh, those who followed them later. I thought I would read you Gregory of Nyssa's um, account of fire. You know, just to know that these guys, they were not getting out, oh, you know, it's all easy now, we all, everyone gets saved, it's all easy. No, that's, they, they were actually like tough coaches, these guys. I mean, many of them lost their lives. They were very... Um, Origen died a terrible death in his 80s. Um, you know, th these were not wimps, these people. But they took character seriously. They took Christian character seriously. So, um, in, in the book on the soul and the resurrection, um, Gregory has... Uh, it's actually Macrina, his sister, speaking about this image of um, the soul being like a body collapsed under debris in a fallen house. Um, imagine, for example, that some bodies are not only weighed down by fallen debris, but also pierced by some stakes which are found in, in the pile of a, say, after an earthquake. Whatever bodies in this condition are likely to endure when they are dragged out by their relatives from the collapse for funeral rites, some such experience, I think, will happen to the soul when the divine power, by its love for mankind, draws its own out from the irrational and material debris. So he has this idea of our souls getting sucked up out of the uh, material debris of the earth. And, and as we get dragged out, we, you know, we're kind of losing the debris that's attached to us. And it's a painful process. For it is not out of hatred or vengeance for an evil life that God brings painful conditions upon sinners when he seeks after and draws to himself whatever has come to birth for his sake but for a better purpose he draws the soul to himself he who is the fountain of all blessedness the painful condition necessarily happens as an incidental consequence to the one who is drawn when goldsmiths purify gold by fire from the matter which is mixed with it they don't do not only melt the uh, the host in the fire but inevitably the pure me metal is melted along with the base mixture um, 
And then another one, which, which actually became a famous metaphor, or if particularly sticky mud is plastered thickly around a rope, so he's got an idea of, of a rope that's perhaps been down in the sea and got all mud around it, that's kind of our soul encumbered by the desires of the world, the mud. Then the end of the rope is led through some small space. So you're going to drag the rope through a very small aperture. Let the rope go through, but not the mud. So you're kind of scaling the mud off as you pull it through. That's his picture of... uh, And someone pulls forcibly on the end of the rope towards the inside. Necessarily, the rope must follow the one who pulls, but the plastered mud must remain outside of the hole. Something like this, I think, we should imagine for the state of the soul. Wrapped up as it is in material and earthly attachments, it struggles and is stretched as God draws his own to himself. What is alien to God has to be scraped off forcibly because it has somehow grown onto our soul. This is the cause of some of the sharp and unbearable pains which the soul must endure. These guys weren't like wimps. You know, they, they really thought we had to get purified to be ready to rule the universe. So that's, that's fire. They're the, uh, they're the, uh, the main frameworks. The only one left is this uh, one of election. I can't go far in it, but look, the answer's really simple and powerful. Election is of a first fruits. You're elect not for your sake, but for the sake of the whole harvest. That, that is absolutely all through the Bible. Christ was the first fruits, meaning he didn't die and rise for his own sake. He did it for others. Israel was the first fruits for the sake of everyone else. So the same for the church. We are saved for everybody else to be a message and a shining lamp. That's the, you know, you're not saved. Where Israel got it wrong is they thought they were saved for their own sake and it became their personal property and only they had it rather than I'm saved on behalf of everybody else. Um, Isaiah 19 is one of these incredibly interesting and important passages that's this blind passage. I, I can't read the whole one. Is anyone very familiar with Isaiah 19? doesn't get a Guernsey, mostly. Um, Isaiah 19 is about the salvation of Egypt. Right? So it's a, it really, I can't read the whole thing, but it's a prophecy against Egypt, the whole chapter, beginning to end. Um, you know, the... the The Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him and the hearts of the Egyptians melt with fear. That's how it begins, right? And on goes this epic purification of Egypt. Egypt gets judged and purified. Um, And uh, halfway through, in that day, the Egyptians will become weaklings. They will shudder with fear at the uplifted hand that the Lord Almighty raises against them. Um, in that day, the five cities of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord Almighty. And on it goes. Um, and then it says, as I the clear, in that day, listen to this, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt. Egypt gets converted. That's, that's the rest of it and a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt when they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors. He will send them a saviour and defender and he will rescue them. This is Egypt, not Israel. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. In that day, they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifice. This is Egypt and grain offerings. They will keep and make vows to the Lord and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. They will turn to the Lord and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. And in that day, there'll be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt, the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Well, I never heard a message on that. 
Uh, like he is aiming to save all the nations. And that is one of many such passages. Egypt, uh, Israel is saved to be the first fruits, not the excluding zone. It's pretty amazing, isn't it, that one? <laughs> so um, I think that gives us different... Does that help give a few different landscapes onto this, these, some of these texts? Eternal, punishment as uh, really purification, fire as refinement and so on. But as I say, wearing sunglasses is no excuse. I had to finish with this one because I love this one. Because I, I can remember in the first talk when I was asked about 1 Thessalonians, I didn't have a, 2 Thessalonians 1, I didn't have an answer. Boy, have I got an answer now. This is, this is now going into conspiracy territory, right? Here it is. Um, it's worth reading the whole thing, but uh, the, the, the verses around it. But anyway, they will be punished, NIV, with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. Okay. Simple grammar. If you're doing literary analysis, verbs, form sentences. How many verbs have we got here? At the beginning of the sentence I've just read out. There are two. They'll be punished and shut out. Right, that's pretty much it. And shut out is really excluded. Fair enough? It's like the slam dunk. Well, guess what? Shut out does not exist in the Greek. It's not there. There's one verb. And how they got shut out, I don't know, but it's a conspiracy. The only thing in the Greek is the word from, apo. Right? So shut out doesn't exist. Something like, now remember what we've done with punished, which we'll go back to in a moment, but they're punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, i.e. when the Lord comes in his glory, emanating from his presence will come this punishment. Does that make sense? It's, it's obvious. From the, that's what the Greek says. But shut out I mean, is an absolute interpolation from the framework of interpreters, and it's shameful that the NIV still have it in there. As a result, Bentley Hart translates it this way. Now, the words he has to change, uh, the shut out one, everlasting destruction and punished. The word punished is interesting. It's not one of the other ones. It's a, it's a word meaning sort of, it comes from the, from the word uh, decaying, righteousness. So it's, it's like a judicial righteousness. Punishment is not a good translation of that word. Everlasting destruction. That's a, that, that should have been, uh, that's Ionis. So Bentley Hart said, uh, they will pay the just reparation of ruin in the age coming from the face of the Lord and the glory of his might. That's a pretty good translation. I spent a lot of time looking at it and the Greek. Pretty, very different, isn't it? They will pay what? Just reparation of ruin, not destruction, but ruin. Which is a, and the just reparation is a much better translation of the word punishment. In the age, now if you think about this interregnum period that the, of the age to come, which is a forerunner and prelude to the new heaven and the new earth, that's, that's, um, that's very much a, a, a purification time in the mind of the patristic fathers. And it'll emanate from the face of the Lord and the glory of his might. Um, this is one area where I mentioned about Tom Wright wimping out. Everywhere else in his, or pretty well everywhere else, in his translation of the New Testament, he swaps eternal for age to come, except here where he retains eternal. That's one of the areas that Bentley Hart got cranky with him on. So, um, let's finish uh, with, do you like that, by the way? Isn't that, that's... That, that was pretty stunning to me, really. Uh, I could say so much more. Sheep and goats, Bible verse tennis. I thought I'd just fill this in for fun. So um, if, I'm, if I've got the servant, my defensive return is, well, the punishment spoken of is for the age to come, not eternity. Um, more importantly, the focus of the parable is evidently on nations, not individuals. Um, it's what it talks about from beginning to end. The main theme of the whole parable is behaviour. It's not about one's destiny. Um, in fact, the last sentence is a post, 
script not a climax. It quite clearly doesn't really culminate the moral, uh, um, the moral uh, uh, direction of the story. The offensive return, which says, yeah, but evangelicals have got problems too. They've got far bigger problems, uh, mainly that the parable seems to exhort good works. The whole of the four spiritual laws is you don't get to heaven by good works. So the only way, it doesn't exhort decisions for Christ. But if you read this, and I've seen this consistently translated this way, that what Jesus meant was, therefore I have to elide the works as merely the benchmark we fail by, which means I have to read the entire parable. Those who inherit life are not those who give cups of cold water. They're those who are sorry they don't give cups of cold water. Because nobody gives cups of cold water, because if we did, we'd be earning our salvation. So you get this absolutely contortionist interpretation forced upon you by an evangelical framework. If you want the last verse to say it's all about heaven and hell, those who, and those who believe go to heaven and those who don't believe go to hell, well, then the rest of the parable is saying, well, there are those who believe and those who, it's not about those who believe, it's those who give cups of cold water to people. So it just doesn't fit. That's a, I think it's a very good return to serve. I think I won that point. Um, <laughs> Uh, if we went to a third way, I actually like the third way, which is uh, this continuity between this life and the next. Look, forget the death thing. Behaviour matters to God. Now and in the age of God, it really, really matters, including societal and national behaviour. And anyone in a position of authority, parents, teachers, kings, rules, leaders, are accountable. And, God, and brotherly love, particularly for the weak, is God's primary concern because he's incarnate in every human being. I think that's a massive uh, third way to interpret that parable. Last one, rich man and Lazarus. Um, uh, defensive return, well, it's a parable. It's not literal. And furthermore, it is... Evidently to me, and this is now, I think, completely the orthodox position around the world, not meant it is drawing upon and, but not endorsing common frameworks or fables. So the, um, Evangelical Alliance in the UK report on hell, commenting on this Lazarus passage, said... From a literary critical perspective, most now recognise that it is based on a well-established Near Eastern folktale of which several versions had been produced in Jewish literature at the time and in which the central concerns were avarice, stewardship and pride rather than the mechanics of heaven and hell. So Jesus was taking a sort of a well-known story because it's got Hades in it. I mean, Jesus nowhere else talks about Hades. He's obviously just borrowing of this. And the point of it is not um, so that, uh, to endorse a framework. Now, importantly, this is a very big one, this one. This helps with a lot. The real audience are the Pharisees. That is very clear. It's 14, 15, 16. Now, it isn't just this passage. The most common antagonistic audience of Jesus were the Pharisees. Like... The vast majority of his apocalyptic warnings were to the Pharisees. So question, who here knows much about the Pharisees? Ron does. Anne does. Well, to my shame, Ron, you might know more, but I've only in the last, say, year, like, who were they? Because they weren't, I, I used to read them that they were priests. They're not priests. So very, very interesting. There's, the study seems to be saying that they, what well, we, we all know, they dominated Jewish life. They were ubiquitous. They were not associated with the temple. Um, importantly, here in Luke 16, they, uh, it is said earlier, they were lovers of money and they controlled the people. Uh, it appears they grew up at the time of the Maccabees, 180 BC. And they, uh, nobody quite knows why and how they started, but that they had shrunk Israel's hope of the future to post-mortem judgments and individual observances to ritualistic procedures that they controlled. You know how Jesus went for them again and again and again? Well, this starts to make... 
a lot more sense. They were like religious auditors, controllers who for their own ego and avarice were controlling people's lives. Now, they're the audience for most of the passages and they're the audience for this one um, very clearly. Um, so the real theme of this particular parable is the, is the moral inversion and destiny. You, you, you put, your egg, put your eggs in the right basket. You were rich and, and, and the, the uh, powers who advances this particular interpretation says it's you were a rich Pharisee. So the rich man was a Pharisee as far as he was concerned. You put all your eggs in the basket, you manipulated, you controlled, you got wealthy. You thought you'd get, by keeping all these little rules, you'd get somewhere in heaven. Guess what? You're on the other side of the fence. And this poor blighter here, who, by the way, you can see in the return of serve, um, the real state of the, of the rich man and Lazarus is not an unbeliever and a believer, but rich and poor. We're not really told what Lazarus believed. And so um, it seems to be exhorting the mindset of a heavenly focus leading to liberality uh, rather than faith in Jesus saves you. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa, I won't read what he said about it. He gives a, quite a stunning uh, interpretation of this parable as a moral fable to get your pleasure rewards mixed right. That's what Gregory said. All of life is a balance between pleasure and pain and rewards. But get the mix right, is what he was saying, so that your affections are upon God. So that's how I'll finish with uh, some examples of Bible verse tennis. And um, you can fill plenty of others in for yourself. I thought I'd finish with this. What if truth was personal? What if creation was like a birth? So what would adulthood look like for the cosmos? when we're all growing up, which I think is where the vision of Apocastasis was going. I, I thought I've got a question. Uh, sure. Just the last one. Um, 